This coronavirus special live episode was produced jointly with the Athens Democracy Forum. Hello, I'm Jonathan Charles, and this is a special live edition of our EBRD podcast, Pocket Dilemmas, organized jointly with the Athens Democracy Forum. In a matter of months, the coronavirus pandemic has taken a terrible toll on lives, our economies, and indeed the capitalism that shapes everything. COVID-19 has seriously shifted the balance between the state and the private sector. It's raised radical questions about how we value and organize the world of work. Can capitalism adapt to and even embrace these changes? Or will the pandemic transform capitalism perhaps forever? Today, I'm joined by a great lineup of guests. Joseph Stiglitz is an economist and professor at Columbia University, a Nobel laureate in economics, chief economist of the Roosevelt Institute. And if I really stopped uh, to read out every single job he's held in his lifetime, we'd be here for a very long time. Uh, also with us is uh, Beata Yavorczyk, uh, professor of economics at Oxford University and the EBRD's chief economist. And Roger Cohen, the Athens Democracy Forum host and advisory board member and New York Times op-ed columnist. Uh, welcome to all of you. Before we begin, a few housekeeping rules. Uh, this event is being streamed live on the EBRD Facebook page as well as via Zoom. Uh, for Facebook Live viewers, post your questions in the comments section. Uh, before we start our discussion, a few pointers as well for those of you who are joining us on Zoom. Please make sure you mute yourself, keep your video off, you can put questions to the panel in the chat box and we'll pick them up. And of course, introduce yourself when you post your question. We'd like to know who you are. That would be excellent. Uh, and we'll take some questions in the last 20 or 30 minutes or so uh, of our podcast. So the question, will or should capitalism as we know it survive this pandemic? Let's get some headline views first of all. What's your top line view on this, Joseph Stiglitz, first of all? I think we're going to still have a market economy. But what had happened in the decades before the pandemic is that we lost the balance between the market, the state, civil society, and we will have to restore that balance. We were not prepared uh, to respond to a crisis because we, for 40 years, we've eviscerated uh, the role of the state. Uh, and even the market turned out not to be equipped to deal uh, with the parts of the pandemic, like providing masks, that were its responsibility. So I think it's given us new perspectives on this balance, and I think we'll go to a new kind of capitalism, what I would call progressive capitalism. Roger Cohen, what do you reckon? Well, I reckon that the pandemic has uh, revealed that we were driving our small planet um, with a relentlessness and uh, at a rate um, that is really not uh, sustainable. Um, globalized capitalism has been um, moving at turbocharged speed um, basically um, since, since the year 2000. And uh, the, I think the pandemic has revealed to everybody that their lives were somewhat crazed and that um, the um, environmental damage was unsustainable and the growth in inequality uh, in our societies as a result of this process uh, is, is, is unacceptable and also unsustainable. And I think that has been particularly marked in the United States where of course there are not the welfare systems in place to buffer against um, the kind of disaster that has unfolded um, with um, 40 million new unemployed um, in the last um, several months. 
So the word I keep coming back to is some form of uh, rebalancing, a rebalancing of people's personal lives, rebalancing between uh, the local and the far-flung, rebalancing in terms of the amount we travel, the amount we go out, and rebalancing in terms of societies in which there is more uh, solidarity. I mean, we have to define capitalism. I mean, you have American-style unfettered, relatively unfettered capitalism. You have the European social democratic model, if you like, and then you have um, um, top-down autocratic capitalism of the kind you see, for example, in China. So I think as we talk, we need to ask, you know, what kinds of capitalism we're talking about. I think that's a very good point and we'll certainly come back to that because it's interesting to think about when we press the pause button, what we press the pause button on uh, a few months ago. Uh, Beata. I think the COVID pandemic has revealed some generational conflict. In any downturn, young workers tend to be hurt more. They are the first ones who are let go. People who enter the labor market in a recession tend to enter at lower wages and that it takes them several years to catch up. Younger businesses are also more, more vulnerable in a downturn. And this current crisis is no exception, but what makes it different is that it was induced in order to protect the vulnerable and the vulnerable are predominantly older people. Second, it's the young people who will be settled with the mountain of debt that we are incurring right now. And third, um, it's the young people who will bear, who will witness and experience the effects of climate change and who will have to deal with the cost of climate change um, adaptation and mitigation. And for the most part, the climate change has been caused by the actions of previous generations. So I think the face of capitalism will change depending to what extent the younger generation will be mobilized through the pandemic. Thank you very much to the three of you for your initial thoughts. It's quite interesting, actually, you know, we heard from Beata, we heard from Roger a little bit about raising the green issue, in effect, which I think we'll come back to because there will be a question on capitalism and green and, and how those two things are interlinked as we go forward. Um, but let, let's go into a bit more detail. I mean, Joe Stiglitz, when you... Um, think about the capitalism we pressed that pause button on a few months ago. How would you define it? Because as Roger Cohen pointed out, there are many types of capitalism. It's not a, a generic capitalism. Exactly. And I think Roger is absolutely right that one of the reasons that the United States was, uh, has been badly afflicted is that we have a more unfettered capitalism with less of a social protection uh, we had uh, uh, greater inequalities. We have the highest level of inequalities, not only in income and wealth, but also uh, huge inequalities in health. And this virus is not an equal opportunity virus. It goes after people with uh, pre-existing conditions. And so the inequalities uh, in our uh, system uh, have been very strongly manifested. And the irony is that the people who uh, are the poorest and the lowest paid are also the frontline workers who are most exposed. So uh, in a way, uh, the people who are put at most of risk are the ones that we're paying the least to. And so all of this has, has uh, 
increased uh, the tensions in our society. One more thing that's particularly relevant in the United States is the racial element in uh, our inequalities. Uh, it's always been with us. Uh, there was a moment uh, 50 some years ago, I was involved in the civil rights movement. We thought we passed legislation and actually there was for a, you know, a decade uh, after that an improvement uh, in racial justice. But uh, the really disappointing thing is that if you look at what's happened over the 50 some years since say the 1968 riots, uh, it's been very disappointing. Uh, I was on a, a commission, uh, a group that looked at uh, the report that was done by the Kerner Commission uh, in 1968, just a year and a half ago, and said, where are we relative to what they assessed the situation? And I can tell you, you know, it was very disappointing. So to me, the kinds of things that we're seeing today are in the United States, you know, on top of the COVID, the direct health things are, are not a surprise at all. There's definitely an issue there. I think we should come back to it later on, which is, you know, for the new capitalism or the capitalism adapted, which we'll have going forward, uh, what are the opportunities there actually to remedy some of those issues? I think that would be something we should we should probably return to. Roger Cohen, I mean, you, you know, Joe Stiglitz has been talking about it. You raised it, this question of the different types of capitalism. Do you think different types of capitalism have been faring differently in this crisis or are they all prone in the same way? No, I think, um, I think if anything, the European Union, obviously the initial response was um, fractured and fragmented and I don't think Lombardy is quickly going to forgive its European neighbors. But I do think on the whole, the European Union has emerged um, better from this crisis than the two great powers of the 21st century, that's to say China and the United States. Um, there was the initial cover-up in China with disastrous consequences, which revealed again that a totalitarian or highly autocratic system is not capable of openness because fear is so rampant that, um, that people who know what's going on are not um, able to speak up, not ready to speak up, or if they do, they disappear or they die. Um, and in the United States where Unfortunately, the, the current leadership um, under President Trump um, reveals this a remarkable and disastrous combination of uh, uh, ineptitude uh, and um, uh, chaos brought on by um, a dysfunctional personality running, running, the, running the United States at this moment. Uh, and, and as Joe just pointed out, uh, but whether it comes to uh, healthcare, employment, you know, I think African Americans account for about 11% of, or 12 of uh, employment in the United States, but about 18% of frontline workers. So again, um, that illustrates, I think, um, the point that, that he was making. Um, whether uh, real reform is, um, is possible in the United States whether we can get, for example, universal health care, get to a, a less unfettered system, I think is always an open question because 
um, you know, the United States was formed in, in contradistinction to Europe and uh, there's tremendous cultural resistance uh, outside places like New York City and San Francisco and LA and Chicago to, um, to the establishment of really a, a welfare state kind of system in, in the United States. And of course the US is a very, is, is an extraordinary wealth creation machine. Uh, it creates wealth very, very unevenly, but um, it's a very dynamic um, system. So um, I think it needs adjustment, and this has illustrated it. And uh, you know, the the murder in broad daylight of of George Floyd on a street in a liberal city, Minneapolis, with a white police officer applying his knee to a black man's neck for almost nine minutes. Um, it was an appalling thing, and it uh, it was appalling because it was it was not an exceptional American scene. This is something that goes back all the way to the founding of the country, and the pandemic, I think, has in some way it was not. I mean, it clearly it you know this did not have to happen, but the pandemic. Uh, shone a spotlight on many of the injustices of American society. And then this incident um, captured it in a way that simply inhabits the imaginations of people all over the world. And that is the crisis we're in right now in the United States. Roger, thank you. And Beata, I mean, we talked about the American model there, which has always been traditionally, it may go down fast, but it rebounds quickly, as has always been the thought on US economies relatively, uh, relative to European ones. But do you think some forms of capitalism have done better in this crisis? Well, you know, let me come back to this key issue, is capitalism in crisis, right? Are we criticizing capitalism or particular implementation of capitalism, right? Capitalism is about free market and about competition but it doesn't mean that there should be no regulation whatsoever. And you know, in the US, we have been observing increasing industry concentration, increasing market power of firms. Um, there has been a lot of lobbying. Corporations have been deemed by the Supreme Court to have the right to free speech. Um, they are very effective at influencing of the legislative process. So, you know, that's not quite, you know, the, the ideal of capitalism. And, you know, similarly, there has been a lot of deregulation and for instance, environmental regulations, environmental standards have been eroded. So perhaps it's not, the problem is not with the concept, but with the implementation. Thank you, Beata. Do you, do you think, um, maybe Joe Stiglitz, I'll come to you. I mean, history is often a good thing to look at when we're, when we're looking at economics and looking at politics, looking at almost everything, as to whether there are lessons that we can, we can derive from history. We're often hearing this crisis compared to the depression of the 1930s. Uh, in the UK, we've heard it compared, saying this will be the worst recession since the, the great tulip crisis of 1709. Uh, so there are quite a few, uh, you know, historical uh, uh, you know, anomalies or historical events we can look at. But do they tell us anything about this crisis and about what we might expect or how capitalism can survive? Yes, they do. But before doing that, I want to make uh, one comment about 
what uh, Roger said and about the dynamics of American capitalism, uh, because I'm uh, much more uh, sympathetic with what with, Beata with has been saying, that America really is a distorted capitalist system today. Uh, it's not a, f a competitive market. Uh, it's a market where some of the most important successes, like high tech, are a result of government investment uh, in uh, the development of the internet, uh, government research, uh, and that if you actually look at the growth rate of the United States, uh, before the pandemic, we were slated to have growth under 2%, which is fairly anemic, especially anemic given the magnitude of the deficit, the fiscal support as a result of the tax uh, cut for corporations and for the billionaires that we had in 2017. So uh, yes, there are parts of the U.S. economy that have done very well with government support, uh, but in terms of what's happening to the standards of living of ordinary Americans, it's not done very well. It has not been a success story over the last 40 years. Now to go back to your- uh, no, no, hold on, hold on a second, Joe, before we go to my question then. Okay, Roger Cohen, you have 40 Yeah, could I just uh, quickly, I, th I think the point I was trying to make, and I, your, your point is very well taken, uh, was more a cultural one. I think uh, a very important word in the United States, and this has to do you know, with space, with a common-sized country, and with the history, is, is self-reliance. That's not a very important word in Europe. Um, it's very important in the United States. And, uh, you know, you hear Americans across the country. I mean, I read somewhere the other day uh, about a sheriff in, uh, in Washington State, I think, who was talking about uh, guns, guts, and God gave us our freedom. Guns, guts, and God. Um, there, there are millions of Americans who think like that. Um, and, um, you know, this, this, uh, this cultural reference of self-reliance is so powerful in the U.S. The point I was really trying to make was that, um, you know, to me it's obvious that why should the United States alone among developed countries not have, for example, universal health care? Uh, it should, but the resistance to it, the equating of, the, of, of even that with socialism and the equating of socialism, and this is lessening now, there are more and more Americans prepared to call themselves socialists, but the, the equating of socialism with the hammer and sickle uh, is very widespread in the US. So these, these are deep-seated forms of cultural resistance to a European-style welfare state. Beata, you wanted to jump in, I think. Yeah, so um, I spent 20 years living in the US, and as a European, I was struck by involvement of people in voluntary organizations, in communities. And why in Europe, people tend to think, well, let us leave it to the state to take care of the vulnerable. In the US, people run food banks and soup kitchens. But you may recall a book from 20 years ago, Bowling Alone which talked about the uh, de decline, decay in social fabric in people's civic engagement. And I think um, this myth or ethos of self-reliance combined with this decline in social capital makes for a lethal combination. All right, thank you very much. Joe, I'm coming back to you now. History, let's go back to history. Yeah, uh, let me make one more point. Uh, and that is, uh, 
the young people are different from some of the older people. And, and that really is one of the things that gives me hope. If you do polls on many of these issues that we're talking about, should there be a significant increase in minimum wage? Should everybody have the right of access to health care? You go down the long list, two to one, three to one, they support the views of the European social model. So in, in fact, uh, the, the kind of uh, perspective that has become co is common in Europe is now becoming much more common among the younger generation. And these are the people who are out protesting uh, now. Now, in terms of, of, of uh, history, I think this is going to be uh, a very deep uh, downturn comparable to the Great Depression. Now, a lot of people make a distinction. The Great Depression originated, some people say, with the stock market crash, uh, factors contributed to it, and then it lasted basically until World War II. The origins of this are very different. It's a, it's a, a virus that started it. But the important point that I would make is that no matter what the origins of an economic downturn, if it goes long enough, and we're on the stage of going long enough, uh, balance sheets of corporations and households and businesses get eviscerated. Uh, a lot of firms go bankrupt. Uh, there's a loss of organizational and informational capital. Uh, there is high levels of uncertainty. Uh, and all of that means that no matter what the origins are, there are internal dynamics within a market economy that without support from government will perpetuate the downturn. So that's why I am not among those who say a V-shaped, and I think most economists do not believe there's gonna be a V-shaped recovery. We are going to be in the kind of long U and a slow recovery. And the magnitude of that uh, downturn and the duration of that will depend on government policies, policies both about health, whether they control the pandemic, and policies about economics, the extent to which they support uh, the, and, and the way they support uh, the, uh, the economy. U.S., no one can fault the amount of money, almost $3 trillion, but it's not been spent well. Uh, so those are going to be the critical conditions about whether we uh, uh, have a persistent downturn. Just one example back in history, the New Deal helped revive the economy. But there were two things going uh, against and why we didn't recover until World War II. The first was there was austerity from below that the stakes having balanced budget frameworks, revenues went down, and as the federal government was expanding, they were contracting. The same thing is likely to happen in the United States unless we give aid to states and local governments, and the Republicans are refusing. The second one is durability, sustainability. In 1937, uh, 36, as the election uh, approached, uh, Franklin Roosevelt got nervous. And there was a pullback in government support and the economy went back into recession. And so what you need to do, and it's a question being debated right now, you need to have sustained support.
Beata, V-shape, U-shape, uh, Nike tick, uh, L-shape. Uh, what does history have to tell us about, uh, about this and what can we expect, you think? Well, let me be provocative, all right? So if you look at countries where we as the EBRD operate, many of them um, have a governance deficit. Basically, the regulatory infrastructure, regulatory framework, governance, rule of law are deficient. And that means that a leader, the person in charge, could introduce huge changes and, in a sense, shift the country from you know, centralization of power to decentralization. To region. They can actually make a lot of changes. And I wonder whether this erosion of regulation of government involvement that you know, um, my other panelists have been talking about means that the US has become less stable and therefore is the, depending very much on who sits in the White House, we can see big changes in its vision in terms of its international role, in terms of um, how you view um, racial relations and you know things such as healthcare provision, right? And and Joe was mentioning young people having um, very different views. I mean, I've read recently that majority of 18 to 20 year 29 year olds believe uh, have a positive view of socialism. So. Could it create a fear in the corporate sector of actually some abrupt change happening? And could it lead the corporate sector um, to push the government to actually um, to a bit towards more redistribution and more attention being paid to inequality? Okay, I'm going to come back to that actually in a, in a question in a minute, so I suspect, because uh, you reminded me that perhaps I should trot out my favorite uh, phrase, which is the social license to operate of companies and whether we're going to see an exacerbation of that uh, uh, post uh, this crisis. But Roger Cohen, I mean, you travel around the country. You're doing it now at the moment on, on a trip. Are people comparing when you talk to people, you talk to lots of people, are they comparing what's happening now with similar events in history? Well, you see, I'm traveling around the country. I, I scarcely moved out of my neighborhood in Brooklyn Heights for three months. I, I think I went above Canal Street uh, <laughs> twice on my bicycle in, in, in three months and was... Uh, Today's a rarity. Ide identifying a, a lot with the city I love and uh, trying to write in my columns about, well, what was happening to the country, but particularly what was happening uh, to New York. I, I mean, I think in historical terms, uh, uh, Joe was talking about the 1930s. Um, of course, the the Great Depression uh, in the United States led to FDR and the New Deal. In Europe, it led to Mussolini and Hitler, yep. uh, the Second World War and tens of millions of dead, um, and the United States emerging as the the great global power. Um, and um, in the United States right now. Um, you know, speaking of speaking of history, we have a president who is um, in a situation of uh, highly combustible, and in the run-up uh, to the election in November, um, talking about domination over and over again. It's his new favorite word, and and bringing uh, the military um, out into the streets to um, quell the protests. Uh, he's also talking about even the election he won in 2016, he said was rigged. 
he's talking about a rigged election. Uh, he's, um, COVID has given him ample margin to uh, impose emergency powers of various kinds. Uh, if there were a second wave, you can imagine what he might do. So I think, to Beata's point, I mean, the United States is, is, is unstable right now. And, uh, and it's, it's in the hands of a president who, in my view at least, is, is capable of just about anything. Um, now, the United States has much stronger institutions than Hungary, but um, um, I think, um, you know, looking at history, um, it's very unpredictable uh, what might happen, and some kind of um, very worrying lurch is, is, not, is not impossible. So I would, I, would, I would draw that lesson, at least, uh, from history at this, at this juncture. And in terms of, you know, what kind of recovery or how, I mean, I think there are going to be some, just the way capitalism works, there are going to be some very fundamental changes. I mean, look at remote working. I mean, nobody at the New York Times is going back to the office before September 8 at the earliest. I sit, columnists at the Times used to have these beautiful offices. <laughs> we were downsized a couple of years ago. And we now, it, it now looks more like a, a row of school desks where you know, I have Michelle Goldberg next to me and then Frank Rooney and then Christoph and, uh, and so on down this line. And imagining that line of school desks, you know, uh, under the new dispensation, quote uh, Elliot, um, well, the old dispensation, but uh, I mean, at most in these lines of five, there could be maybe three at most, uh, two. So what's going to happen? You know, are corporations, I think it was the head of a major bank, I can't remember which one, I said, you know, do we need these buildings? Um, do we need these buildings? You know, the very high cost with seven, 10,000 people in them. I mean, I live in Brooklyn Heights and I look out across the East River to downtown Manhattan, very lucky, especially as I was confined there for a long time. This distance. But I was looking at the towers and what came to my mind were the towers of San Gimignano in Italy, <laughs> the <laughs> towers you know, of, of Europe. And you know, would somebody a hundred years from now look at these towers and just say, well, you know, what were they ever for? So <laughs> I, think, I think there are gonna be some fundamental, also, you know, will people really travel for meetings anymore? I hope they do. The nice part of conferences was the drink afterwards and <laughs> chatting with your, you know, colleagues. And, uh, but I suspect a lot of that will be Zoomified. And um, so I think there are going to be a lot of changes. Um, uh, and we will emerge into, into something different. How different remains to be seen. Thank you. It was the boss of Barclays in the United Kingdom, actually. He said, right. uh, where, yeah. do, I, do we need this place where we bring yeah. everyone yeah. together? Uh, yeah. Right, we'll come to the changes in a minute, but Beati, you want to jump uh, in. Just to the point about remote work, I wonder what will it do to the social fabric, um, to the civil, civil society? Right, because on the one hand, you may say, okay, now we are lacking the face-to-face -face interaction at the workplace, so we will turn more into our community, we'll get involved in our neighborhood, uh, in local organizations. But there's another possibility that actually the work-life balance will be tilted more towards work rather than life. And you know, the studies that I've seen are suggesting that in Europe, 
under remote work, we are working two hours longer and in the US is three hours longer. So perhaps, you know, we will even do away with a lot of face-to-face -face interaction. And again, you know, will it be now Zooming alone rather than bowling alone? What a terrible ah. prospect. <laughs> what a terrible prospect. Uh, right, let's uh, look at then this question of what capitalism has to do to move forward. When it, when, it, when it starts to come out of this, you know, I think I'm sure we all agree on it. Capitalism is a very robust thing. Uh, entrepreneurial spirits, you know, those animal spirits are very robust. They find ways of adapting. Capitalism has always been very good at adapting in crises and coming back in ways that perhaps we wouldn't have thought about uh, a year before or whatever it might be. So what does capitalism do now, Joe Stiglitz? Well, I think, uh, to go back to what I said in the beginning, there has to be a new balance between the market, the state, and this is what Roger said. Uh, the, and that balance is going to uh, entail, for instance, uh, a, not only a better social protection, but a better protection of our society. You know, just to give you one example, uh, we have national security. One element of security is freedom from pandemics. Hmm. Obama, there was a White House office in the National Security Council for pandemics. Now, Trump disbanded it, uh, but it was very clear that, you know, if we had an intelligent person in the White House, uh, it was clear that that was a threat and that's something you would do. Uh, and uh, same thing, having a Centers for Disease Control is an important part of government protecting us as a society. Uh, he defunded that, uh, took away the funding, not completely, but every year uh, uh, weakening it. So one aspect of it is, is a broader understanding of the role of what I call more broadly collective action. Some of the collective actions are local, some of the national, some of civil society, people working together, some of it is class action suits, uh, there are a whole variety of, you know, unions. There are lots of institutions by which we act collectively, of which government is the most important, but there are lots of others. And part of the ideology is of individualism sort of denigrated all these roles of collective action. The second thing is uh, the role of regulation. And this comes back to what uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, climate change. Uh, when I pollute, I kill other people or I affect other people. Uh, the pandemic is an externality. If I go out and I'm contagious, I cause other people to die. So my freedom is somebody else's unfreedom, their la uh, right to live. And I think we are beginning to understand that in a complex society, you need regulations. The Ten Commandments was a simple set of regulations about how a primitive society can live together. We have a more complex society. We need more regulations. And then finally, government does lots of other things uh, besides protection and social protection and regulation. What makes us have a higher standard of living today than we had 250 years ago are is science, advances in technology, mechanisms of social organization, and to a very large extent, they rest on a foundation of collective action, 
particularly by government. You know, all we were able to respond to this virus very quickly, diagnose what it was, to you know, figure it out. It wasn't just people dying. There, there was a, a coronavirus. We're well on the way to developing a vaccine, hopefully. Um, those are the advances of science. All, 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 virtually all of the advances have been government funded. And so as we think about that, that's an important role of government. You know, each of us on our own couldn't do this. And so that notion of individualism that's part of, uh, part of American mythology is a myth. And but wait, so- but, but, Joe, Joe that's, that's very, you know, it's very interesting because obviously you're talking about the role of government there. And I wonder where you think then the balance lies between the role of the state and the role of uh, private sector. And I ask that question because obviously the state, you know, has been making a bit of a comeback in many countries. Uh, capitalist economies over the last few years since the financial crisis. Now we're in a position where, in effect, the state is the employer of last resort in many countries, the insurer of the economy in last resort, you know, many, many things. It's probably the state is going to end up in many countries being a, a shareholder in many, many large co- and, and small corporations, by the way. You know, so, so it it's, would seem to have a big role for the state. It reminds me a bit, you know, if I cast my mind back to certainly the 1970s in mainland Europe, uh, where the state is, is a big player. Um, and then we have the years of rollback on that. Uh, but where, where is this going to end? Where do you think that balance lies in the years going forward? So I think the way you framed it is right. This is an issue that is constantly going to be discussed and uh, tuned one way or the other. Uh, The world changes and we have to tune it one way or the other. So there's not a way of saying, you know, giving you an answer, you dial it 33 degrees. I don't know how to even uh, describe it. One of the important points to realize is it's not how big the government is, but what it does. So, in the earlier era of socialism, government produced steel. Nobody thinks that that is the right function of government today. You know, even though in Korea they did a better job of producing steel than the private companies in the United States, that's not the primary role of government. And so we've, we, the, the analysis in economics has tried to fine tune what are the things where collective action is particularly needed and where is it advantageous to have decentralized innovation? And how do you bring those two together? I mean, I think that's part of the advances that we've had in economic understanding. So I wouldn't say it's the size of the state, but it's what it does. So we now understand the role, the greater role of the state in protecting us as a society against pandemics. We knew it before <laughs> at a theoretical level. Now we really feel it. Uh, we understand uh, the role in the Cold War was protecting us uh, against the threat of communism. That was an important role. Unfortunately, uh, we are now spending huge amounts of money on weapons that don't work against enemies that don't exist. Uh, you know, we haven't changed our minds about this, but we have other security threats. And so this is always going to be the problem. Our mindset lags the, the challenges that we're facing. And so that's why you, know, you have to have constantly these robust debates like we're having today, discussions to say, okay, where are we today? 
in 2020, different we than we were in 1980. Reagan and Thatcher said we had to redial a little bit more towards the market. And I think they redialed re far too much. Uh, now we need to redial um, in which all these issues, like Beata's issue that she talked about, intergenerational equity is a really big thing that our societies are going to have to be facing. Racial inequities is something that is not going to be solved except collectively. The inequalities, the climate crisis, uh, and we become more aware of the dangers of unfettered capitalism. You know, in the United States, we have a uh, a childhood diabetes crisis, we had a financial crisis, we have Dieselgate, you know, so confidence and trust in the private sector has deservedly gone down. So uh, that too is shaping how we think about changing the balance between the government and the markets. We need, uh, uh, we can't just trust the market, we know that. And we don't want heavy-handed regulation, but uh, in the UK, you had light-handed. It turned out to be too light. <laughs> Let's, uh, well, I think that's Roger Cohen. I can only invite you in here today because, uh, you know, response to that, that uh, view from Joe, because it's run smack bang into the view you've just espoused of, of the way America is, for example, that self-reliance. You know, that, that runs slap bang into the contradiction between the need for the state to play a bigger role in a crisis uh, and what many ordinary people would see as, as the correct role for government. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be misunderstood on self-reliance, but I just, um, I, I just believe it's a fundamental characteristic uh, trait uh, of the United States and of its self-image, of, uh, of its mythology. Um, and of course, a lot of those very self-reliant people uh, welcome Medicaid and Medicare sure. and, uh, all the other checks that arrive in the mail. So there is that. I think we're at a moment of fundamental systemic rethinking. Um, um, this is the first major crisis since 1945 in which there has been a total absence of American leadership. Mike Pompeo, US Secretary of State, greatest disappearing act of the COVID crisis. Um, where is the United States? It is, it is nowhere. It is nowhere in terms uh, of coordination, um, completely absent. I think um, UN Security Council incapable of uttering a single word. So I think there's a, a kind of systemic rethinking and that's happening at a moment, of course, when there's a strong autocratic push in China, um, to some degree in India, uh, obviously in Moscow, and how the whole uh, democracy, open systems, uh, rule of law, human rights, uh, how that all plays out against more oppressive systems, I think is a big question of the, of the coming decade. Part of the systemic rethinking is that we've seen in this crisis that capitalism is not working. Uh, and I think we knew it before. It's, it's not working. It's, it's, it's increasing inequality in our societies to a degree that has simply become intolerable. And that explains the rise of a lot of the people that I just mentioned. Mm. They didn't come out of nowhere. They reflect something. They reflect failings mm. in our democracies. We have to look that fact in the eye and try to do something about it. Uh, capitalism is also, in its current form is also impacting the environment 
Uh, I mean, look, we went quiet for three months. Suddenly there was birdsong. Suddenly, I mean, nature was saying very loud and clear, you gave us a break and we appreciate it. And here we are. So extrapolate from that. Um, capitalism is not working. Democracy is not working. Uh, not working as it should in the United States. It's been bought to an unacceptable degree in the United States. Uh, we've had two out of the last five elections in the United States where the popular vote went one way and the electoral college result went another way. Is this acceptable going forward? What reforms are needed? Uh, the, how the Congress and the Senate are constituted? Um, there, are, uh, there are anomalies there in terms of the, how Americans are represented that seem to me um, unacceptable going forward. And, and then there's the question of, of, of the nation state. Um, uh, you know, is the nation state uh, an adequate, uh, adequate to address questions like climate change? I don't think it is. On the other hand, you have a tremendous rise of nationalism. So these are big systemic uh, problems. On capitalism itself, I mean, I think some of the I mean, why in the United States does, does some hedge fund honcho pay, pay low, a lower tax rate than a factory worker? I mean, that doesn't seem to me an issue that, that, that is that difficult to address. Others are more difficult. But the, yes, there needs to be uh, some rebalancing that um, puts an end to, or moderates at least, um, the excesses that have um, left an unacceptable number of Americans, tens of millions of Americans, in situations where they don't even have savings to get through, the, through three difficult months, or even three difficult weeks. No, oh, it's quite staggering when you see those sort of statistics. Beata, capitalism, you know, as we've just heard, you know, and we all know, you know, was in trouble before this crisis. There were questions about capitalism and about inequality and many other issues. Democracy, you know, questions about democracy and democracy and trouble. This has brought it all into sharp focus. But, but where does capitalism go now? Where, how does capitalism climb out of this difficulty and what does it look like? Well, I very much agree with Joe, but let me just put some of his comments into uh, perspective, right? So uh, you, Jonathan, talked about expansion of state, but you know, the state will strike back after a long period of retreating. Yes. We have observed for the past 20 years risks being shifted away from firms and onto workers. Um, we have seen deregulation, we have seen steady declines in corporate tax rates, even in personal income tax rates. And we have seen more and more what's in polite company called tax management and in less polite company, tax base erosion and profit shifting, right? So in a sense, a lot of it is about regaining the ground that has been lost. And, you know, we have very much believed in voluntary standards on the part of corporations, right, ESG. They have not delivered. And frankly, on the environmental front, we are running out of time. So we will see more regulation. And in particular, I think we will see, well, we should be seeing more regulation with respect to competition. Now, there has been a lot of progress in Europe, and actually there has been this reversal between the US and Europe. 
But I'm a bit less optimistic than Joe in a sense that I worry that there will be a regulatory divergence between the US and Europe. So in Europe, you know, the state will play an even greater role, we will have more regulation, while the US may continue on its current trajectory. Okay, let's um, move to some questions from the audience. Quite a lot of being coming in. Uh, the first is from Annika Sabel, the head of the UN Democracy Fund. Uh, and she asks, well, with rising social security costs for governments, not just those actually, rising costs for governments that are in many cases already heavily indebted, um, it appears the only solution will be a significant rise in corporate and income taxes in most developed markets. So crowding out private sector investments. Uh, do you see another road ahead? Or is that the road ahead, uh, Joe Stiglitz, first? Well, first, uh, we have underutilized resources. And so the first challenge is to make sure that we, we fully use, utilize all our resources. Uh, if you remember before the, uh, at the time of the 2008 uh, uh, crisis, uh, the head of the Federal Reserve talked about uh, a savings surplus. Uh, a savings glut. Uh, if we have too much capital, that's a sign that uh, something's not right in our system because we, we need more investment, more infrastructure. So we have capital that wants to be put to use and we have enormous number of uses. The system is not working. Uh, even in the United States, when we get unemployment down to a relatively low level, the employment level was very high, uh, low. That is to say, the fraction of the people working age that were working. And that reflects uh, 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 a lot of people. Uh, the statistics don't really capture uh, the true state of the labor market. And that's one of the re reasons wages were not doing uh, very well. So the first thing is we have scope for increasing production. And particularly right now, we have enormous scope. Uh, after we get to something that is truly full employment, then there is this issue of reallocating resources. And uh, those are the hardest choices. Uh, I think given the levels of inequality in our society, uh, there are ways that we can actually achieve a more equal society, including intergenerational equity, uh, uh, that actually make our economy more efficient. So let me give you a couple examples of that. Um, the fact that uh, the very richest people pay a lower tax rate than ordinary workers uh, distorts our economy. Uh, the hedge fund that Roger talked about, we are putting resources into hedge funds that should be used more productively. A lot of these people are very smart, but it would be a lot better if they were used in more constructive ways. And our system encourages them in the way, because we, we, we have these lower tax rates for speculation, for restructuring in ways that leave them more fragile. Um, so uh, that's one example. We need environmental taxes. Environmental taxes help direct the economy towards a greener economy. And they're not just green, it's toxic waste. There are lots of other aspects of, of our environmental degradation. So you tax bad things. Uh, we have excess financial transactions and that's why I support a financial transaction tax. Uh, so there are lots of ways that we can actually
actually impose taxes uh, that would create a more dynamic economy and a more uh, uh, equal economy. One more, um, no society uh, ever became wealthy just by real estate speculation. Uh, you know, uh, the, the reason we have a higher standard of living today than we did 250 years ago, as I said, you know, it has to do with science. It has to do with research. Uh, it's a knowledge economy. It's not building these peculiar towers that Roger and I look at. Uh, that, I, I love that metaphor that you uh, you gave because I I love uh, the, the Tuscan towers, but it, I had never thought of that in, in the way that you uh, pictured it. But it, it is I mean they're they're almost obscene in, uh, as you see them around uh, the city. Um, so we're devoting resources in that direction when we should have been devoting it another. So if we have a, a higher land tax, Henry George was a great economist of the 19th century pointed out that taxing land is non-distortionary because the land is not going to go away. But actually, by increasing the value of land, by taxing it so much, you encourage people to invest in other things, productive capital, research, uh, intellectual capital. So uh, to me, I don't view taxes as a necessarily a, a bad word. Uh, I think it's an instrument in our society and we haven't used it as effectively as we have, uh, as we could. And the result is the distorted society that we have. Uh, and by reshaping our tax system, uh, we can actually get a more dynamic and a more equal society. Thank you, Roger, taxes, and actually it's inequality we come back to again, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I was, that's what I was saying about the, the, hedge, the hedge fund honcho versus uh, a worker. I mean, there is, I mean, that is preposterous. It's, it's outrageous. And, uh, and I think it's as powerful an illustration as, as one can have of the extent to which our societies have become skewed. And one of the, one of the characteristics of this um, pause that we've been in this three month, four month, you know, hitting the pause button is you're rushing so much, maybe you don't see it or you see it in glimpses, but it's, it's just flagrant. It's right in our faces that um, things have become unacceptably skewed. And I, I don't really have much to add to what Joe said. I think he summed it up um, brilliantly. Beata, are we looking at higher taxes a couple of years down the line once we're through all of this? I think in Europe, we will, there will be a renegotiation of the social contract, right? Greater expectations expectations vis-a-vis -vis the state in return for higher taxes. But as long as these taxes are perceived as fair, and you know, what both Joe and Roger mentioned that, you know, taxes are not fair because, you know, if you think about Apple in 2014, Apple's tax rate in, a, in one European country was half a percent. Right? Now, that's clearly not fair. So there is, you know, scope for getting more revenue um, without actually really changing the rules, but through international cooperation, through actually, um, you know, limiting ability of multinational corporations to engage in transfer pricing and tax management. And, you know, there was a proposal floated 
uh, last November by G20 and OECD for a proposal for a minimum global minimum tax rate, a proposal for taxing tech platforms, even if they have no physical presence in your jurisdiction. Of course, this can be achieved only through international cooperation. But and I think in, back in November, that was probably viewed as politically impossible. But now, as everybody will be weighed down by the debt mountain, actually, the impossible may become possible. Lots of impossible things are possible at the moment, aren't they? It reminds me of the discussion about universal basic incomes as well, which, uh, you know, certainly in some countries taken in advance. Uh, a question from uh, Noor Alpasabas uh, on Facebook, uh, and they say, what is your anticipation on gender inequality and whether there are ways that that's going to uh, be reduced, that inequality? going forward as part of uh, capitalism's reset. And it's an interesting question right now, where we hear quite often in many uh, economies that women are being even more affected than men on average uh, by the current crisis in economic terms. Uh, Joe Stiglitz. Well, I think uh, this is part of the uh, new mentality. Uh, you know, the younger people see racial justice just obvious thing that they want and they think gender justice is just as ingrained in their uh, sense of identity of, of what a good society. Uh, uh, it's worth noting that uh, some of the countries that uh, have done the best in responding to the COVID-19 are led by women. Uh, New Zealand, uh, Germany, um, and there is also the perspective that after the 2008 crisis, uh, that if we didn't have so many alpha males running our banking system, uh, there would not have been uh, so much uh, excessive, excessive irrational risk-taking. So I think there actually science, you might say, you know, has been showing that actually uh, our economic form better, not only by, because we're, we've been underutilizing an important resource, because actually their judgments will be better. Uh, and, and as behavioral economics has given us insights into the way minds work, we've come to understand that it really is important to, to have every perspective at, at the table. Let's have enough from alpha males. Let's have an alpha female. Beata, um, gender inequality, capitalism going forward. Uh, is there something that's going to help to reduce this inequality in the, the new capitalism, whatever it is we're going to see? Well, so on the one hand, I, I worry that the gender agenda may slip because, you know, we will be so consumed with the recovery um, that just nobody will want to pay attention to gender dimension. I also worry about what remote working will do to gender balance, right? Because on the face of it, it seems like it should be great for women. But in reality, actually, it can have the opposite effect because remote working creates the perception that you must be available 24 seven. And it creates expectations of speedy response. And what you see, um, for instance, when you look at firms that export, you see that firms that export, um, that increase exports to destinations that are in different time zones, see an increase in gender wage gap. And that's most likely linked to the fact uh, that women are just less able, they are less flexible, and they are less able to work outside the standard working hours. 
Uh, on the other hand, change is possible. Economics profession is very male dominated, but we have seen huge changes in recent years. So I'm hopeful. Okay, um, let me move to another question, which I think is probably one actually, it's a more of a political economy question. I think it's one for you, Roger, from Atanod Bogdanov. Uh, what's the likelihood of China becoming the standard setter for economic development, political governance, control of security? And how would that change the notion of the international community? Um, we talked about a vacuum, you've mentioned a, a, a vacuum globally. Uh, Roger, what do you make of that question? Well, there's no question that Xi Jinping is the most um, assertive, aggressive um, Chinese leader in a long time, and he's now made himself, in effect, leader for life. So, and through Belt and Road and other initiatives, uh, China is clearly trying to project its power in a far more aggressive way um, than previously. It's been interesting during the crisis to see how active Chinese diplomats in Europe have been um, on social media and elsewhere uh, talking about how brilliantly China has in fact handled uh, the coronavirus pandemic and, um, and uh, attacking very forcefully any uh, attempts to, to criticize China. So, um, and I think the technological advances that China uh, has made combined with a very assertive and militaristic uh, leadership. Look at what's been going on in the South China Sea and elsewhere. Um, I do worry a lot about Chinese attempts to uh, project power, project its model. There's been talk of China trying to make um, its currency the international reserve currency. And at the same time, you have the main counterbalance, the United States in a, in a, in a, in a state of of great disarray. Um, I don't think, I think there's a lot of resistance to China in Europe and in the United States. I think there's a lot of anger toward China um, toward, over what has what happened with the coronavirus. So um, I don't think it's a slam dunk for the Chinese at all. Um, but I think we need to be very aware of, of I mean, personally, I don't want to live in a surveillance state. That is what China is today. It's a surveillance state. It's still a state where if you cross a certain line, you disappear. And you may disappear for a very long time. Um, it is not a state where the very foundation of our liberal societies, that is to say, the rule of law, the rule of law, it does not exist. The rule of law in China is the CCP. It's the Chinese Communist Party. Do you want to live in a society like that or in a world system that is run under that ideology? I think the answer of billions of people, I know there are 1.4 billion in China, 1.3. The answer of a lot of people on this planet is no. So um, I think there will be a lot of resistance to Chinese attempts to impose its model, but I think it will try. Thank you very much, Roger. Right, time's winger chariot is getting away from us here. Let's try and uh, wrap up. Let's try and have some concluding thoughts. Um, if we were having this conversation a couple of years down the line, hopefully having come through the coronavirus crisis, capitalism having survived, um, 
what uh, what does capitalism look like when we're having this conversation two years down the line in terms of the trajectory then Joe Stiglitz well I think uh, a lot of uh, a lot will depend on what happens uh, in the elections in November in the United States uh, a lot will depend on how uh, the EU responds to uh, show support for Italy, Spain. Um, let me give the optimistic uh, note uh, that, uh, you know, they've begun with a 750 euro uh, fund. There's still debate going on. Should it be grants or loans? They make the right decision and say it's going to be grants. Uh, there's a lot of debate about whether how much conditionality uh, they'll give it uh, with very little conditionality saying we are a transfer union uh, you can't be a union without being a transfer union and Europe emerges as a beacon for human rights uh, the opposite of what Roger described as a failing state where you have privacy uh, picking up what Beata said uh, you have competition, you have a market economy, not a oligarchy uh, and a plutocracy. Uh, so for me, Europe has an enormous potential if they solve these little problems that I've uh, just described politically. Um, for me, success in Europe is really important because I'm worried about what's happening in the United States. But now let me turn to the United States. I assume that the outcome of the election uh, in November uh, is what I hope it will be and and uh, Americans reject the uh, Trumpism, the, demog uh, the demagogue, the militarism, the and say, you know, we, we want to go in another direction. Uh, and they take over the Senate and the House. Uh, we uh, reconstruct the Supreme Court uh, we deal with some of the democratic deficits that Roger was talking about that are very profound. Uh, whether we do it in a deep way with the Constitution or finding workarounds is another question. But somehow we deal with these democratic uh, deficits. Um, and then we, we think about uh, uh, the Green New Deal. How do we deal with the uh, uh, we, we construct a... Uh, health uh, system of uh, health care for, for all, the right of access to health care for all, education for all. Uh, in this optimistic note, uh, the United States and Europe are moving together in areas to create a, a, a vast area of uh, uh, competitive market economies with uh, social uh, cohesion. Uh, kind of solidarity, uh, greater equality. Um, it sounds a, a little bit uh, rosy uh, scenario. I think it's possible. Uh, and of course, it's what I will be fighting for, uh, but it's not inevitable. And uh, you could all imagine the opposite. So I want to stick with the optimistic view. Of that's what we're going to have. I'm optimistic by nature too. So uh, even though I think I'm about to faint at the thought of how much there would be to do over the next two years to do that. Uh, summer of 2022 then, Roger Cohen, what do our societies, our economies look like when we're having this conversation? Well, I don't think we're gonna go back to where we were before. And I, I sincerely hope that there will be 
the kinds of rebalancing and um, adjustments uh, that lead to more equitable societies marked by greater solidarity and greater senses of community. And we won't be Zooming alone, uh, as Beata said. Um, mm. I certainly hope for that. I mean, the nightmare scenario is easy enough to imagine. It, it is that um, Donald Trump wins again in November. Uh, Americans continue to live under a leader afflicted with psychopathic self-absorption. Uh, with all the consequences that that that, that, that has, uh, that autocratic leaders around the world uh, seize on the virus and the emergency powers that they're unable to invoke as a result of that to uh, further um, repression that the economy does not um, rebound in a significant way and you have huge numbers of unemployed um, across the world who protest but are repressed by said autocratic leaders um, and, and the world enters a very dark phase and we have been through a pandemic. A pandemic demands a pan-global reaction, right? What we've seen is a fragmented world. So I think the nightmare scenario is easy enough and I've only vaguely sketched it, but it's easy enough to imagine. I think Joe Biden will win in November. It's not a done deal, not a done deal by any means, but if, if we work hard, if we work very hard, um, I think we can get there. And uh, I think in Europe, the mutualization of debt to which Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron agreed is, is, is a big step. And I still dream of, um, after my lifetime, 2075, the United States of Europe. I'll end with that. Okay, right. Well, Beata, who's a lot younger than the three males involved in this conversation, uh, Beata, summer of 2022, in your lifetime. <laughs> well, we, we haven't talked about the role of media. So let me give you my dreams related to media. Um, I am sincerely hoping that the trust in experts will be restored, despite the best efforts of populists to undermine experts because at the end of the day, people will want to get competent advice on, on their health. I'm hoping that online platforms will do something to filter out lies. And I'm hoping that we will start emerging from the post-truth world. <laughs> okay, let's uh, end on that note. I'd really like to thank the three of you, uh, Roger, Joe, Beata, for your conversation here. I think it's been really, really uh, fascinating. And, and uh, maybe we should get together in 2022. We can see here how well we did on, on trying to predict the future. But a big thank you to the three of you uh, from your different Zoom loneliness locations. Uh, hopefully, maybe in 2022, we might be getting together physically. Um, but thanks a lot. It was a great uh, thought-provoking discussion. Uh, this episode, by the way, obviously is part of our special Pocket Dilemma series, Pocket Dilemma podcast. Uh, we produced it jointly with the Athens Democracy Forum. Big thank you uh, to them. We'll be posting a podcast of today's session later. You can download it on iTunes. Uh, we love, by the way, when you review and rate it, helps others to find uh, this podcast. Uh, I'm Jonathan Charles. I look forward to our next discussion. Stay safe. Goodbye. This coronavirus special live episode was produced jointly with the Athens Democracy Forum.